and welcome to episode 57 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike, focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. This is Shane the Bone Crusher Beeps here in Denver, Colorado. With me on the line from Chicago, Illinois is the Torb father himself, Dave Harbarger. Yeah, I moved a lot of things from one damage to three damage in the last couple of weeks. It's pretty good. How's the family feel about that? Uh, well, my one-year-old's now three and my th- four-year-old's <laughs> now six. And so everybody's just moving along fast. Oh, man. Uh, also with us, somebody who is absolutely not three goblins in an Aloha shirt. It's Zach Colhan. I am so very excited. I now own four of the Foil Bone Crushers. and I've got to play them for this deck and for my real deck. I'm just covering Bone Crushers, baby. And finally, today we have a special guest from California, the Chonkmeister himself, Todd Anderson. Welcome to the dive down, Todd. Is that a fat joke? The Chonkmeister? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> Holy jeez, Batman. I didn't know that I was going to be attacked on my intro. I should have thought this through a little bit more. All right. Hello. Hello. How, how's it going? Uh, yeah. Out here in sunny California. Excited to be on the dive down podcast. Thanks for having me. We got quite the replacement for Stan this week. <laughs> yeah, Stan is still cycling the fjords on his like paddle boat. Of God, it's he's getting in so many steps. Let's just say that <laughs> he's uh, longboarding on the cobblestone streets of Amsterdam. That's where he is. Yeah, he's in Amsterdam still. Uh, we miss you, Stan, but glad to have you here, Todd. Todd, you recently moved to California, right? Yeah, uh, my wife actually got hired by Blizzard Entertainment. Uh, she works on the. Oh, I've heard uh, of that. Yeah, she works in the Hearthstone department, and. Hmm. Um, uh, she's basically in charge of what I uh, call her the PTQ system. You know, she runs their PTQs sure. there. Oh, wow. Awesome. All online, too, which is nice. So she. Yeah, uh, yeah very cool. Yeah. Do you play Hearthstone, too? Uh, I actually play a ton of this new version they have called Battlegrounds. It's That is very popular. It's uh, it's huge right now. Um, a lot of the, uh, I think, one of, one of the members of the MPL actually streams it almost full time. <laughs> uh, what's the name? Um Savage, Savage, yeah, Savige. yeah, yeah. He's, he's he's been killing it, and uh, the, I mean the game's just awesome. So she doesn't she doesn't have a big part in that. That's like a whole side project for them. But. We'll have you back on the ground down when we start covering that. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Our Hearthstone podcast, the ground down. That's not a card. I like it. No, that's fine. Well, uh, this week, Todd, instead of battlegrounds, we're gonna have you join us to talk about. One of the most popular decks in Pioneer over the past few months, that's Big Red, or as the kids are calling it these days, Chonky Red. And this is actually our first Pioneer deck dive. And so we thought it would be best to have an expert along for the ride. And so prior to the dive down, we're going to have an interview with Todd during the breakdown, talk about his experiences as a player, a writer, a broadcaster, and now a streamer. And then in the wind down, we're going to be asking Todd some questions from our patrons of the Dive Down Nation. First, have a little housekeeping, though. So thank you, as always, to the newest patrons to join the nation. That's Jacob O. and Tyga S. Thanks to them for joining the nation. And if you have any interest in helping us out, joining the super secret Slack server, getting some sweet swag, you can check out patreon.com slash the dive down. To, uh, see what we have to offer you. Uh, also, we're brought to you as usual in part by Manatraders.com. It's how we're able to test decks on the dive down every week on Magic Online without stressing about buying and selling cards. Use sign up code the dive down for 15% off your first month's service at Manatraders.com. Three months, Dave. They get three. 
Ooh, three. Wow. I don't know if I got it that good when I did it. I also to- <laughs> I also totally didn't screw that up by accident. And so we're just moving on. It's good. Fix it in post. I'm not sure how that that's how that works, but all right. Yeah. We're leaving. be amazed at the miracles that the turds our editor can follow. This is okay. We're keeping this all in. It's gold. So uh with that all out of the way, let's give Todd some time in the spotlight. We'll head on into the breakdown. So Todd. Thanks again, man, for joining us this week. So typically in the breakdown, we talk about recent tournament results, but since there's nothing too major to discuss this week, we wanted to devote some time talking to you, uh, give you a little bit of a benefit of being on this pod with us. So Todd, people who have seen you in the competitive magic scene likely know you as like an SCG and a GP grinder for a number of years, but Mm -hmm. now they also know you as a writer, a commentator, and a streamer. So Talk to us a little bit about maybe your magic origins. Uh, so originally I started playing magic uh, in the like late nineties, uh, a couple of friends of mine from middle school. Uh, they owned a bunch of cards. They got me into the game and bought my first portal starter deck from Barnes and Nobles way back in the day out of, out of the bargain bin. One of the first rares I ever opened was a portal Two Armageddon. It was super lit. <laughs> I still have one of those in my EDH deck. Dude, it's so pretty. It's so pretty. Um, And so after uh, a few years, I was actually kind of isolated because I I lived out in the the country with my dad in Georgia for a while. And I would actually just like trade online with people uh, to get the things I needed. And then I would actually just play against myself because my brother didn't want to play. It was pretty, pretty big bummer. But uh, sometimes you, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. So this was back during like the early 2000s. How were you like meeting people to trade? Was it like message boards online, like pro boards and stuff? Yeah, it was definitely message boards. I don't even remember the one it was. It was uh, so like 99, 2000, 2001 was about that time period where I was trading online. Maybe it was just Magic Traders. Is that is that the big one? I was doing that on Usenet for real, like alt.games.strategy or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I built up a collection just like trading on there and, and – uh, just like play testing decks by myself. And every time I'd go visit my mom, there was a comic book store that I would visit and buy some new cards and I would find people to play with and trade with and stuff. And it was very casual. Like one of my first uh, tournaments I ever played in, I was playing Kavu from Invasion Block. Kavu Tribal, I put some fires out of my my Kavu deck and got second place out of like, you know, 15, 20 people. It was nice. And then... Uh, and then it was all from there. I met a couple of people who actually went to tournaments and then that really caught my attention after, uh, being very competitive and gaming and sports and stuff in high school. Then it was a very easy transition to get into. So awesome. What, what was the first card that you feel like really hooked you? Was it the Armageddon or was it something different? No, uh, I, I actually, it was probably Desolation Angel, honestly. Like I was, I was kind of a casual player for a while and then, the first time uh, Apocalypse, like, I mean, I, I, you know, I bought booster packs out of like uh, Mercadian Mass Block or whatever, but really it started, I started to really get into it in Invasion. And then the card that just like drew me in forever was was Desolation Angel. That card, actually, I, I don't know where it's at. I actually have a print of it somewhere. That it's, it's somewhere lost in my new place. So. <laughs> You know, people, I think, know you mostly from the SCG tour, but you've also, you know, top eight, you've top eighted four Grand Prix. You mm-hmm. played in 13 Pro Tours based on the stats I could find. What were kind of your GP and, and Pro Tour experiences like? So Grand Prix for me were always like the the main event when I was like really getting into competitive magic. And they were always a lot of fun. 
Uh, I, you know, I didn't like travel around and fly to them too often or anything like that. It was just like, oh, there's one in Atlanta or, oh, there's one in Nashville. And then we would drive the two or three hours and it was fine. It was fun. Um, as, as I got more competitive and started traveling to more events and stuff, yeah, I started booking flights to Grand Prix and that, that was always a huge financial drain because, yeah, uh, the payout was just not worthwhile for the flight costs. It's just, it's just un, un, unrealistic. Um, but the dream there, the dream was what always kind of drew me in, like to play magic professionally. As I got older, as I got wiser, I realized that, hey, there's this place where you can play semi-professionally and you also can make a living writing articles and making uh, kind of like videos, like verses and things like that. And so I just kind of hopped on over to Star City Games as a circuit and that was much more lucrative and much cheaper to travel to than, than the Pro Tour circuit. And my wife, Callie, got a job at Star City Games running all the tournaments. And so I got to travel with a bunch of local people and also a lot of pros who actually moved to Star City to start working with, for them in the uh, the early 20-teens. Uh, Jerry Thompson, Brad Nelson, Tom Ross, you know, et cetera. Um, that was like where I actually met. I, was, I don't want to say I discovered BBD. But BBD was like random guy from Virginia and I met him at like a game night. You know, he had, he had like made the finals of PTQ or whatever. And, uh, and then like I introduced him to Brad and Jerry and then we all became pretty good friends. Was that around the same time that Ross Miriam showed up? We've had, you know, we've had Ross on the show a couple of times. Uh, Ross was, Ross has been a he's, he's been, um, around for a while now. He's actually one of the longstanding members still in Roanoke. Everyone else has kind of moved on. Um, Ross came uh, around like 2015, I want to say. He's been there three or four years now, four or five years. I don't know, a long time. Um, he knows all the restaurants, that's for sure. Oh, he is into the culinary scene. Yeah, I, we, we share a lot of similar opinions about a lot of those places. So. <laughs> so what's that transition, though, been like? So you were a regular tournament player, you know, in the GPs and the SCGs, and now you're doing commentary. What's that been like, kind of going from a player to a commentator? So to to finish off the the previous question, I actually just kind of got oh, lost on my own train of thought. No, it's my fault. Uh, playing on the pro tours was always exciting, but as for someone who's like, I, I feel like I'm I'm probably like a B plus player, right? On my best days, I'm like an A minus, maybe an A. And the more you like play on the pro tour, the more you kind of realize exactly where you're at as far as skill level is concerned, like you can only get dumpstered so many times before you, you realize like, well, even if like you could spike once, right. It's not worth the just years and years of investment that you got to put in to actually be at the top of the game. The money's, the money's not there, honestly. And, and so what, what I learned pretty early on was that it's just more financially secure and lucrative actually to not only to play on the SCG tour, but to make content. And content generation is the only way that anyone can really make money in the industry as far as, uh, you know, outside of the top 10, 10 cash people like PV, Mangucci this year, just crushing it, Brad, Brad Nelson, a couple other people like. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah. I mean, there, there are people who have made a decent amount of money, but you could ask a lot of the people who want a pro tour 10, 20, 30, you know, or 10, 20 grand or whatever, like five, 10, 20 years ago and like. That was a one-time thing for most of them, for almost all of them. And it's not it's not sustainable. The, the, the system just doesn't allow you to. But the SCG Tour system, excellent. Uh, transitioning to commentary has been a dream. 
Honestly, I, I love doing commentary. I love talking about the game. And honestly, the, the worst part about Magic is playing the games. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Just gonna throw just gonna throw that one out there. Have you ever drafted before? You ever drafted? Oh yeah. Yeah. Playing the games is horrible. Building the deck, drafting the deck. <laughs> can, I, yeah, can I just draft, please? Yeah. Yeah. And not <laughs> and not to like circle back, but that's one of the reasons why I really like Carson Battlegrounds is because it feels like you do all the drafting and then the game just plays itself out. Right? <laughs> what? Because it's an auto it's an auto battler, so you just set a lineup. It's like fantasy football or whatever. Hold on, what? Why am I not playing this? I don't know. It's great. It's a great game. I'm sorry. Not to give them free press or whatever. They don't owe me nothing. Longtime listeners will note that Dave once had a fantasy football podcast. Nice. Oh, you might be really interested in this, Dave. Blizzard Games, <laughs> get at us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the ground down is coming. I told you. <laughs> no, it's, for, it's the ground up. The ground up, yeah. Ground up's good too. <laughs> yeah. Dive down. There you go. You, ground can, up. you can have that one for free. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Todd. <laughs> okay, and along with uh, the commentary, right? You've been streaming a lot on Twitch lately. I feel like you know I love it because I work from home and yeah. I usually have a streamer on in the background. You're like you're on my afternoon shift. You come on doing some cool stuff with Pioneer. What got you interested in streaming? Uh, part of it was just a amalgamation of all my various talents, being decent at magic, uh, being relatively charismatic, knowledgeable <laughs> about the game, like understanding um, more higher level stuff, but being able to translate that well through practice. You know, like it took me I've been writing for Star City Games for 11 years. Mm. And so I've been putting my my thoughts into words for that long. And so now I just put my words out there and, and hopefully it helps people get better at the game. And that's, you know, at the very least that's the hope. And as far as like why I chose streaming, it, it, it just made sense. We were moving out here. Callie got the job at blizzard. Um, I'm not going to be able to do versus live anymore. That was one of my, uh, you are missed. big ways to generate revenue. Thank you. Uh, it was one of my biggest ways to generate revenue was doing the extra content for star city games. But a lot of that stuff being in house work, Ended up where, well, I'm moving out here and I'm basically just going to have to flap my wings, you know? And I've streamed, um, you know, off on and on for the last eight years. Just like, you know, I'll go hard for a month here, hard for a month there. But ultimately, I never picked it up because I didn't need to. It wasn't, it didn't, I didn't need it to be a job. So I only did it when it was fun. Uh, now, though, it is a job and it's still fun, but now I treat it like a job. You know, I think you found some interesting ways, I think, to kind of, get listeners, I mean, get viewers involved while also kind of, you know, building the community as well. Right. Like how have you been enjoying the, the building the community with your stream? I mean, it's been a, an experience for sure. It's, it hasn't been easy, but obviously the pioneer boom certainly helped. I was in there in the casual rooms on day zero when they announced the format. I'm like, Hey, let's build some decks. <laughs> and I just got a couple of my, uh, my stream regulars and a couple of friends of mine to put some decks together. And I just fought them all day. And my viewership doubled and the next day when it became like a, a real format or whatever, on magic online tripled P top eight of the PTQ 10 X, you know, like it was, it was unreal. Yeah, I was going to say, Pine, you've seemed to make a pretty big impression on the on the new format. How's that been? It's a pretty unique experience to kind of be able to hop in at the beginning like that. What's that been like? Oh, it's it's been a wild ride for sure. I mean, 
people keep attributing certain cards to me for get, like getting banned. And that just, <laughs> for me, I'm always having to be like, well, I, you know, someone else did this first. I just picked up the deck and streamed it. Right. Sure. Like the, I personally have built no decks. I hone decks. I take existing ideas and I try to make them better. Yeah. I mean, the way magic exists and the way like the online brewing community exists, it's really hard to sometimes give one person credit for something. I feel mm-hmm. like people really want to do that, right? Like, oh, this person made this deck and this person streamed this, they had this deck. But it's interesting how just like, well, no, like 17 people at the same time thought about these red cards together and it worked, right? Well, actually, <laughs> well, well, now that far, I say okay. that, <laughs> no, it was very, very specifically, there was one person on, on my channel in my community that uh, brought like this deck to my attention. I have a, a thing where you can pay five bucks to, to do deck tech, where I just look at your deck, I tell you what I would change, what I like, what I dislike, etc. And um, and also do like donation deck run-throughs while I'll take your deck through a leak. And so this one uh, person, Jeremy Lichtenberger, uh, goes by Killerger. Killer oh, yeah. I've seen his name. Yeah. I didn't know he was the originator. Yeah. Okay. He, was, uh, he actually, sh- he brought me a deck that was basically Eldrazi Red. Yes. It had, re- it had Reality Smasher, Thought Not Seer, Matter of Shaper, uh, but it also had Goblin Rival Master and Embercleave. And th- those were the two things that really drew me to the deck. Um, over time, you know, he actually kept honing it. He 5-0'd once here or there. He would bring the deck back whenever he would, like, get stuck before when he couldn't 5-0 anymore. And then we'd make changes and we'd go over it. The biggest addition that I made to the deck was Bone Crusher Giant, which is just, like, a, That's a big it's change. a no-brainer. It's, it is a big change. But once you think about it, it's just a no-brainer. Like, it just makes perfect sense. And it ended up being one of the best cards in the deck. Yeah, I'm still bummed about how we undersold. We, you know, when we did our Eldraine spoiler episode, we kind of un- undersold the adventures in general. I think when we talked about them, I'm still kind of like months later bummed about it because none of them have huge effects, but they're all just two for ones. And so it's like, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, just even Brazen Bar, the first time you actually cast the front half where you bounce something and you're like, that felt pretty good. <laughs> and then and then like two turns later, you're like, oh, now I get the delay click now. Yeah, what exactly. F- I mean, even with Bone Crusher, like I saw it, it looked cool. And the first time you cast it, it's like, wait, end of their turn stomp, play Bone Crusher? I'm the best magic player ever. Yeah. No, I kept I keep so many hands with with chunky red where you just get to EOT stomp uh, a creature and untap and just yeah, play it. it. And it's, God, it feels so good. Yeah, it does. What's been your favorite favorite deck so far in uh, Pioneer, though, is it is it this red deck you've had the most fun with? Oh, it's think- definitely Lotus Field Combo. Really? Because I love Mike. I love Micro. No, I hate it. Okay, <laughs> I hate that deck so much. And they ju- and there's it a really new one me. now. And I we can talk about it later. But I hate it so much. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't like decks that make me do a lot of micro transactions. Basically, if you <laughs> if you want me to to click a hundred thousand times to win a game, I would rather drop from the league, which I did today. Oh, you so did. <laughs> So the most you want to do is what, just like exert Glorybringer. That's like even that. That's a, nice, that's a good one, right? Yeah. It just everything about Chunky Red appeals to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, removal spells that can double as burn spells, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Creatures that are good early and late game. You're cutting. You're, you're 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 you're, uh, you're getting to the next point. Okay, Todd, look, I, on, you're man. asking me what I like, and I'm telling you why I like it. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, I'll shut up. I'll shut up. More on that in the uh, the extended deck tech known as the dive down. Okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no don't problem. apologize. Not to us. Oh, no. Don't apologize to me. No. Look, I'm from the South. We apologize for, like, <laughs> burping, okay? Like, I, I didn't mean to make a noise. I'm sorry. Here in Chicago, it's street rules, baby. Okay? So. <sighs> okay. I'm Zach. I play mostly modern. 
So how do you feel about modern in the past year, like, you know, beginning of 2019 until 2020? And, you know, we can factor into that. So how do you feel about modern overall the past year? And then also, how do you feel about the huge, enormous bands? It's on fire. It's, <laughs> it's been on fire for a year, dude. Get it's like out. Tire fire. It won't go Get out ever. Out. Uh, right. It's, it is the Simpsons tire fire. And hey, exactly. Understands, good catch, good everyone catch. understands that it's the Simpsons tire fire and they know that like nothing you do is going to put it out. Uh, and it's always going to be there. So it's best to just look away. Just so so you're not hopeful. Like you don't think the recent <laughs> well, bad yeah, is look away is really hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, you know, it's, it's not so much that the recent bands I think um, are bad. I actually think they're fine. I just think banning in general, having to ban stuff is horrible. Just point blank. If you have to ban a card in any format, you are literally taking money out of your customers' pockets because they invested a chunk into your game and you are telling them that that money is now worthless. Um, so, very interesting. Uh, question about that. So do you think that some number of bands isn't perhaps acceptable or normal and that they really should aim for zero and not have sort of a buffer zone. This isn't a loaded question. I'm genuinely curious. No, I mean, it's a tricky scenario. Like if, if it's already bad, right? Like you have to ban stuff because it's, I would not want to watch Oko mirrors in modern the in, pros until the end God. of time. Okay. So they said on Twitter. Look, anyway. no one give, <laughs> no one gives a crap what Jonathan Rossum thinks about, about Oko mirrors or whatever yeah they're the most skill intensive who cares dude there you'll finish one game congratulations you won game one nice deck nice match it's not fun to watch get it out i don't know like the thing is about bannings right they are a necessary evil but they're still evil sure yeah, and and you should strive for zero. And if you have to hit one every couple of months because of you know you don't have enough resources then you have to work on fixing that in the future. And I, all I've seen is them literally just using the bands as a safety valve to print overpowered, ridiculous crap. And and I just, I'm sick of it. Like Modern Horizons, I thought was a great idea. But you all you have to do is you just have to look at a, a game file or whatever, like a card file yeah. of Hogak, Risen Acropolis, next to Altar of Dementia. Just look at them next to each other. One the game breaks. Yeah, one is a known combo piece breaks. too. Known combo piece in EDH already. <laughs> right. And it's not like altered like they were like, oh, we'll be a really sick reprint to just kind of throw in there last minute. Dude. Let's just put altered dementia there, man. The mill guys are gonna love it. I was gonna say, so you're kind of a pass on modern in general right now. And that No, I love it. I love playing modern oh. when it's not a huge dumpster fire, but it's been a huge dumpster fire for nine months. Only nine months? For like, or sorry, eight, seven months, whatever, since July or June or July. No, but I'm saying only seven months? You don't think it's been a dumpster fire like kind of forever? It's been a dumpster fire forever. The entire time. It is literally the Simpsons tire fire. But sometimes you're cold and it's warm. So you just stand nearby and, it, you know. I, yeah, I found Solos and many a goblin embrace before. Absolutely. That Death Shadow deck is looking pretty cool. I guess I'm going to dip my toe back in for the next three weeks and then run away. So I think, you know, even, even if modern isn't the best place to be playing right now, people, I think have some hope after the bannings, what would you be looking at in modern? I know our listeners would want to know. Here's the thing. What is the one card that has basically existed uh, throughout the, its entire time in modern um, has never been banned yet always shows up even in the most high powered formats. Just name one. Blood card. Moon. Is Blood it a moon. large green 
man. Oh, it's a large green man. You, you may have heard <laughs> of him as a uh, primeval Teton. Sorry, that's French. I don't know. Primeval Titan. Yeah, so prime Primeval time. Titan has just been around in every busted version of every modern format. And it's always gross and it always does something really stupid. And then it never gets banned. They always ban the specialty land or whatever. I mean, that was the Mox Opal issue, right? Where Mox Opal was in every degenerate or bogus combo artifact deck and it was always a card around it. So do you think Titan's days are numbered? Uh, I mean, I I think in gen- generally speaking, it's just going to be one of those cards that's always potentially problematic. Sure. And if you if you want to ban it at some point, you're just going to piss off like a lot of people. And it's the same reason like you don't really want to ban Mox Opal because it was like a hundred dollar card, and there it it just is the centerpiece of twenty decks. Same with Faithless Looting, except right. Faithless Looting costs a right. dollar. So I don't know. Well, common versus mythic, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Titan is at least has had some reprints, so it's not that hundred dollar card yet. But yeah, I think it's it's one of those pillars of the format that people continue to to build around. And like you said, it's it hasn't seemed to be even on a watch list yet. No, I mean if you just look at these uh Simic Field of Dead decks that have popped up in the last few months of modern, like you'll understand that it's it's nothing but Primeval Titan. It's the only card that matters mm-hmm. in any of these decks. And it's always about Raven and Primeval Titan. You play four summoners pack to find more Primeval Titan. And sometimes you have an artifact with it, but it's not even clear that Amulet Titan is better than the normal Simic Ramp versions. A Royal Grazer's showing up. And now with uh, Elysian Dryad, I think it's what it's called, um, you know, like now that deck can just play like two copies of Valakut the Molten Pinnacle and it's just fine. And no why one cares. Not? It's like, why are we able to do this? I don't understand. This card is not okay. Throw another tire on yeah. the fire. And that's Primeval Titan. Primeval Tired. <laughs> and that tire has a name. <laughs> Primeval Tireton. <laughs> that's good. All right. Let's let's loop back to Pioneer really quickly. Uh, Head West few- real quick. Last last few questions for you, Todd. Do you, do you think there's a risk of the Pioneer format becoming kind of solved in any way? Well, especially in context of like the way modern is solved. Like, you know, modern got to a point where, you know, a lot of people are just keeping an eye for how to do the most degenerate thing. Like Pioneer, does that have that same potential, you think? Or? I mean, especially with the tournaments coming up soon. So do you think that like kind of the pros focusing on this, you think things are going to be you know, quickly rising to the top, or do you think Pioneer still has a ton of room for exploration? Uh, I think it has a reasonable amount of room for exploration. I I try to play different decks and showcase different strategies on my stream quite a bit, and I I kind of come back to some of some of the same decks every now and then, like Mono Black Aggro, even though Smuggler's Copter got banned, is still pretty good, still puts up great numbers. Um, Chunky Red, you know, similarly put up great numbers is very good in a fair format where there's not a lot of weird combo stuff. And then, you know, uh, lately you've even seen these like five color Nimbus that's cropping up that don't look like they make any sense. And the mana looks horrible and none of the three color mana bases make sense. So why, why is this a thing? And I have no real answer. <laughs> there's no answer. It's, it's, com- it's called pioneer because it is wild and free and it is awesome. Cool. So you're still hopeful. In the coming months. I mean, we are, I think we are too, I think. Although so. Underworld Breach may have something to, to say about it, but you know, <laughs> that card is not cool, dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question for you before we move on. What are your hopes for 2020 this year for you know yourself, for magic, for your involvement in magic? I hope I get to do commentary on a bigger stage. I didn't get to do the players championship this year. I was a little bummed about it. 
but that's just because we had sets of commentators and there was like one on one invitational, one on the other, and one on players' champs. And Cedric and Patrick mm-hmm. did the uh, all three of them because they're just the best, and that's that's fair. Um, but like <laughs> you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, arena-based tournaments coming up this year uh, with a lot of independent organizers, and I, w- I would just love to do more commentary, especially if I can do it from home. That's that's always a plus. Uh, as far as far as the stream is concerned, I I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to grow it slowly and steadily. I had a huge burst uh, with Pioneer, but uh, you know. So if you said playing Magic is the worst part, would you say talking about Magic is the best part? Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to start a podcast, but it's it's one of those things where you just got, you just got to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, yeah. The, that's. I mean, that's. Our, I think our advice to you would be just do it and do it every week, and you, you got to grind for a mm-hmm. bit. Ain't that the truth? I mean, it's a job. You're just doing your job. It's a fun one. It's a really fun one. Really rewarding. Worst jobs. Actually, Toys R Us once. Bad time. I told people this is the only band that I've ever been in that anybody wanted to listen to, <laughs> which is like a very strange <laughs> twist in my life, but. Yeah, it's the best group project I've ever had. All right. Uh, 2020 goals. More more commentary, bigger stage, hopefully. Uh, stream growth, just slowly steady. I had a big bubble burst recently. With the Pioneer, I, I ended up jumping up like four times my normal sub count or whatever. And now I'm like, now I'm like back down to like 2x my normal sub count. So it's like, okay, we got it. Okay, you know, hopefully we just uh, keep keep chugging along. You know, I don't expect instantaneous success. So the fact that I had it was like pretty scary because now I'm just <laughs> it's like it's like sand going through my fingers, you know. All it, all it takes is is weekly uh, pioneer prelim like finals. OK, you just got to do that every week. Just sure. make it to the finals. Seems reasonable. Yeah. I mean, every time I make the finals of a PTQ, uh, an angel gets its wings. And I've get, I've given away a lot of angel wings this year. <laughs> Or this this past six months. I think every time you make a finals, Todd, a card gets banned. <laughs> if I remember how things have actually <laughs> yeah, been working. Two things can be true, Dave. Yeah. Well, that makes me think, just really quickly, are there any bannings that happened in Pioneer yet that you think were premature or silly? Like, what would you unravel, if anything? Uh, I went back and, and thought about it a bit, actually, recently. Um, Ryan Overturf, my co-commentator and, and fellow streamer, uh, we do like a little get together on stream like every now and then where we talk about the bannings or we talk about the new set like we did a makeshift set review recently. Um, and I think the only one that really stood out to me is kind of egregious and kind of like, a, hey, we just really don't want um, we just don't want Nick those trying to next to be good was Leyline of Abundance. And it kind of breaks the game in some ways. Like if you just have Eternal and Elf, you get four mana on turn two, and maybe that's too good. But it, it 100% was banned because it it fueled Leyline, or it fueled Nykthos. And it it sure. itself, like I sided it out a lot. Whenever my opponent was killing my elves, I sided it out, period. Like if they had Shock or Fatal Push, it was gone. because it's it, too much risk. Yeah, because you're just uh, investing a whole card into something that has basically no effect on the game outside of your Nykthos tapping for extra mana or whatever, like sometimes it just that that's the only one. Do you foresee a day where that's like the stone forge or perhaps maybe blood braid in modern where it comes back one day or it's it's just gone forever? You shouldn't do that. In my opinion, you should not do that with cards that are only going to lead to unfair games. I think with Stoneforge Mystic, there's a lot of back and forth. Leyline's kind of hard to interact with. It does something unique that not a lot of decks can really do anything about. And uh, I, I just don't foresee that being the cards that they bring back. Oath of Nyssa, maybe. 
But then you have to contend sure. with like freaking Kethis combo and stuff like that, abusing it. And, you know, it, unbanning stuff is always dangerous because there's a reason it was banned in the first place. But then again, you have the cards like Wild Nakatl or that were just banned because the pros would not stop playing with it. Like the pros just kept <laughs> playing Wild Nakatl blue decks, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Josh Utter Layton just wouldn't stop playing Wild Nakatl and Negate in his deck. And so they had to ban it, you know? So Todd, before we before we leave the, this kind of interview segment, do you want to just give us your kind of your Twitch handle and your your schedule and everything? Yeah, so it's strong underscore sad. Um, strong sad is like the character from Homestar Runner. If you all, you all remember that one, raised by a cup of coffee, I believe. <laughs> no, that's Homestar. Homestar <laughs> raised by a cup of coffee. <laughs> I, I just want everything to be Homestar, and I wanted you to do the voice. So welcome to my honey trap. <laughs> Yeah, my stream schedule, I, I usually start around uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time, basically every day. I take off one day on the weekend, usually either Saturday or Sunday, depending on if there's a PTQ on one day or another. But if there's a major tournament for me to play on one of those days, I will be playing it. During the week, uh, almost every day, I start around uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. And strong underscore sad. There it is. Um, so we're going to move on to the dive down where we talk about Chonky Red in Pioneer with one of the main innovators of the deck. So stay with us. So everybody, if you have been paying attention to the shifting metagame in Pioneer, you likely have noticed that a certain style of big red deck has been gaining a lot of traction over the past month, six weeks, eight weeks, and is currently one of the most popular and seemingly most powerful decks in the format. So you you know you curve from one drops like Soul Scar Mage all the way up to the five drop in Glorybringer. This deck is affectionately known as Chonky Red, and it looks a lot different than the mono red aggro decks that you might be used to. And so today, of course, we still have Todd Anderson, a noted chonky red enthusiast with us to go over what chonky red is trying to do, why you might want to play it. We'll talk a little bit about the history of the development of the deck. We'll talk about the cards, of course, and how they execute the deck's game plan, how to think about playing with and against the deck and then devote some time to talk about how it's evolving to try to stay ahead of the changing metagame in Pioneer. Todd, you even run an article recently on SCG about Chonky Red, right? Yeah, uh, I did a, a full breakdown of the, the card choices and um, common misconceptions and the archetype. Like, for example, one of the, the biggest things that people kept calling it was like an aggro deck. And it's not. It's a mid-range deck. And one, once you just hear that your entire approach to the archetype just changes and, and like people's win rates have just gone up since they started listening to me. So <laughs> yeah. So like, listen to Todd, your rates will go up. That's the one thing we want you to understand today. Put that on a pin. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what chunky rates trying to do. Right. So help us understand what it is. Like how is it different than kind of an ag aggro red deck? So at its core, it's a mid range deck. You, you have some aggressive elements, but every mid-range deck throughout history has either leaned towards more control or leaned towards more aggro. Sure. Um, and, and the reason why that people choose to play them is because they're malleable and they're flexible. And, and, and you play those types of decks because you're good at being like reacting to what your opponent is doing. If your opponent's a control deck, well, I have these one mana creatures that can grow, or I have these two mana creatures that play defense and offense both. 
And then you kind of leverage those creatures with a little bit of disruption, whether that's discard or removal or whatever. And you, you turn that into a, a, a coherent strategy. And after sideboard, you are advantaged in a lot of scenarios because you can, can, can uh, cut down on your control elements in favor of aggressive elements or vice versa. And voila, that's, that's a mid-range deck. That's how it works. And this is, this is exactly that. Um, you also gain the benefit with Chonky Red of being able to just play like a really aggressive game plan with the likes of Goblin Rabblemaster. And um, you have one of the better top end threats in the format in Glorybringer. And because of the format, it kind of is sitting in this place where most decks play some number of creatures or planeswalkers and they're vulnerable to hasted things. Cards like Glorybringer are just, you know. They're super valuable right now, and and one of the reasons why this deck is popular is be- and and good is because it's playing four copies of Glorybringer. Yeah, one thing that I noticed that makes this deck look a lot different than kind of uh, what what one might think is an aggro red deck is it runs a ton of lands, like 25, 26 lands. Mm-hmm. Like, why is this deck able to run so many lands? Uh, so for those of you who've been playing like Magic for a long time, you'll you'll know that the card Mutavault is particularly busted. Like it's just <laughs> very good, and it's been a key part of many mid range and aggressive strategies for a very long time. Specifically in one and two color decks. Think back to original Theros block, Pack Rat, Four Mutavault, Mono Blue Aggro Four Mutavault, and 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 there were many others. Right, um, even before that. The original printing in Morning Tide with fairies, it was a huge part of that deck as well. Now, uh, we are in a format where it's way less about tribal synergies or, I don't know, color metrics, whatever you want to call it for devotion. And it's way more about just using all your mana every single turn. And Mutavault allows you to take any amount of extra mana and dump it into the Mutavault and attack for two extra points of damage or at the very least threaten to block two points two points from yeah. the, the opponent. And, sure. and there's all those like random like tribal synergies, right? Like it mm-hmm. pumps up one on Rabble Master, and that matters, right? No, the the one extra damage from Rabble Master does matter. It is that is like even, I will say this: if it were just Mistress Factory, I would certainly still be playing it. Like it's just it's just good, and that part of it in this deck is is not that relevant. But you are correct, and that and every little bit does help. Uh, so it runs so many lands because a you never want to miss a land drop, and b if you can always find ways to use the extra mana, always hitting your land drops is great. You know, you can flood out with a deck like this and still be fine because you have Mutavault, you have Ramiap Ruins, you have Castle Embereth, uh, and all those lanes just let you use extra mana. And they all kind of function like half spells. And every time you get to cast half a spell, you're not really flooding. And this is one of those times where all these lands are also pretty playable and modern. And like mm-hmm. a lot of modern sort of big red or red stompy decks are running Ramiap and Embereth and just... They're good ways to spend your mana, like hold up removal. And if you think they're not going to use it or don't need it, then you get to pump your team by one mm-hmm. and you make tokens as we'll get into. I love this deck. I love Castle Unbirth. It is a very silly card. I think one of the things that's the most interesting about the lands in here, though, is that all of these get to convert directly into damage, basically. And I think that's one of the things that really kind of draws a distinction from the other kind of decks that get to run similar packages, right? The the mono black deck doesn't really get to run the black um, hour of devastation land that you know in ramen that ramen up ruins is because it doesn't have a, an effect that's quite as useful. Where here you if get near ruins or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and and similar. I mean, Castle Lockwain is great, of course, and and totally worth running in in multiple mm-hmm. copies so you can draw cards. But I can't tell you how many times ramen up ruins when I was playing this 
chonky red deck really saved me you know either through top decking it or playing one early and being like i'm running out of gas i'm running out of gas and then all of a sudden i'm like oh i have the last four damage because i have two ramanap ruins in play and i get to cash them in it, it's it's a great way to extend your reach and similar to mutavault in that way no exactly uh that that's certainly a, a great point and a great usage of of the lands there and i'll say this too the, the threat of Ramiap Ruins is often almost as good as the Ramiap Ruins itself because it also dictates how your opponent plays the game. Like, for example, if I have, uh, let's say, Lightning Strike or, or Bone Crusher Giant with the ability to stomp in my hand, but I also have Ramiap Ruins, a lot of times my opponent just is unaware that they're within lethal damage range. And so they make a play that is more aggressive getting onto the battlefield to try to match the things that I'm playing. And instead, I just get to burn them out from seven damage sometimes. And with cards like Chandra, Torch of Defiance, Ramanap Ruins, Goblin Roundmaster doing that chip damage, and then all the normal burn spells like Wild Slash, Stomp, and Lightning Strike. Like... You can just start throwing burn at your opponent when they're at 10 life and they will probably die before they kill you. And that's just how the deck works. Yeah, it's super fascinating to me because this is one of the... It's it's funny that we hopped into the lands the first thing to talk about this deck because we had, you know, our Real notes, estate is where you got to start. Exactly. <laughs> our notes had the, had the deck in a totally different order and we're like, but first, we got to talk about how sweet this mana base is because yeah. you never feel like you're flooded. And I you mentioned that earlier, but that's the main point is like, your lands are good draws. Oh, absolutely. And like, sometimes you can double activate Castle Emberth if you have two. Like, that's the dream. And like, you get to do it often, but then it's like, how do you lose a game? My goblin tokens are three ones and like, imagine a Torbrun. Poof. Right. Um, I think one of the the things that I, I try to consider when I'm building decks is how often am I looking at my opening hand and saying to myself, I will win this game if I draw five lands in a row. Yeah, <laughs> and I've never, seen you say that so many times. Yeah, and whenever that's the case, I'm like, maybe this deck just needs like one or two more lands. And every time I've added lands to the deck, I've never been unhappy. I've never in my entire life been unhappy adding a land to any deck that I'm playing, except Tom Ross's like 17 land decks that he plays or whatever sometimes, or he's just a madman. But it just works because it's Tom. Uh, you know, stuff like that. But I, if I can look at a deck and just say, I would love to draw four lands in a row then you should add a land to your deck. Yeah, so Todd, you know, you've convinced me already. I'm just going to only play this deck <laughs> from now on. But I think this deck has really caught on quickly, right? So mm -hmm. wh why do you think people have enjoyed playing with this deck? And why have you enjoyed playing with this deck? Uh, it's honest magic. And I think that that's something you don't get a lot in the eternal formats is just playing on, on the table, um, killing creatures, playing creatures of your own, like that type of generic... Uh, ABC magic just doesn't happen nowadays. And and the deck is complex. Don't get me wrong. Every single card has two modes. Um, you know, there's a lot of extra mana generation. There's a lot of sequencing potential. Like, how often do you lead with Mutavault on turn one versus holding sure. up Wild Slash? Because I I lead with Mutavault a lot. Really? Ooh. Wow. And it okay. sometimes burns me because then I can't <laughs> slash it. But yeah, there's, if my there's opponent, a risk reward there. Right. But if your opponent leads with, like, a Howled Fountain, you just get to attack them for two because you don't have two drops. In the dark, I almost always led with Mountain. That's interesting Interesting to think about. Yeah, that's totally interesting. So we've talked about like the comparison you can draw to Modern is Scred, but Scred has to play Blood Moon, right? Like that deck has to have that unfair access. It can't play that ABC creature game like you mentioned. But Pioneer, because it doesn't have as much, you know, the complex mana base, as much degenerate combo, as much fast things, you get to do things like 
play a rival master on curve or, you know, and like not be like, well, I might be dead on crackback. We'll see what happens. And just like play out your hand and have fun. And like, I really enjoyed that sort of maybe back to basics, but I mean, basic in a derogatory way or like, no, you're absolutely right. It's ABC magic. And that's, but, but a lot of us came to magic playing that, you know, we weren't really exposed to combo decks until later on. So our, our experience with magic is just play a creature. Oh, it dies. Okay. Play another one. Okay. Kill yours. And you have this game where it's about establishing dominance on the battlefield. And, but if you look at legacy, you look at modern and hell, you look at even standard the past couple of, of, of years, and for legacy, it's all about the hand. It's all about brainstorm, ponder, sculpting, figuring out how to use your mana the best way and, and make sure that you don't die to random combos via force will, et cetera. You look at modern, uh, there's a lot of big haymaker turns, but there's not a whole lot of back and forth. There's not a whole lot of interaction. It's usually very one-sided games where if the person A has the answer to person B's combo, the game ends. And so now in Pioneer, we're actually finally at the settled spot where a lot of the degenerate stuff is banned or just not good enough because they lost one of their combo pieces. And now we just have people playing good old-fashioned Lenore Elves into three drops. And whether or not those three drops are creatures or not, like, hopefully they are. That's that's more fun. But I think people were, like, you know, they were just – they're just getting sick of playing just – I don't know, the the new school type of magic where everything is just kind of overpowered and wins the game by itself. I and I I hate that magic too. So yeah. All right, Todd. Let's talk a little bit about the development of the deck because I think that you played a pretty substantial role in in pushing the deck forward along with, like you said, your uh your partner in crime, uh, killer germ there. Yeah. So I think the first version that I could find, I went to the MTG Goldfish archives, right? The first version I could find that used Glorybringer which I kind of consider like this is the definitive creature of the deck was mm-hmm. actually from you. On, no, like, it was the, me. It was the me. middle of November. And like you had like one drops like Legion Loyalist, you had Robber of the Rich, you, you had Thought Knots here in the four drop spot. So it still had that kind of Eldrazi uh, remnants. You had a Braid and Harness Lightning as your in your main deck over the Lightning Strike. Mm-hmm. But you know, you had you identified power level of things like Ember Cleave, Rabble Master, Chandra, and Glory B. So is this kind of like was this deck something uh, a brainstorm of yours, or were you getting inspiration from elsewhere? It was like a collaborative effort. It was very much a collaborative effort with Killiger. Um, he, you know, he would bring me the deck basically once every couple of days and be like, "Hey, here's where I'm at now. I just five owed. Tell me what's wrong with it. How, how can we make it better?" Right, and that that actually just happened like five times. And I'm not exaggerating. I think he brought it to me at least three times to just talk about it. And and five times overall, I think, between doing the deck tax. And the, we played it like two through three leagues with three different iterations. And finally, in the last one, I 5 owed, And I believe that that was like the list he gave me to play through. Uh, but Glorybringer is something that I suggested along with Bone Crusher Giant and a number of other changes. But the that version you're talking about was so archaic that, like I said, uh, you know, the, the, no card that currently exists in the deck outside of Wild Slash currently exists in the deck. Except Wild Slash could also just become Shock. <laughs> and it would just be like the same damn thing. So. Yeah, it doesn't matter as much in this meta right now anyway. Yeah. Right. Uh, historically speaking, if you want to talk about like uh, the old cards in the deck, you know, we we did have Harness Lightning with Ether Hub. That was a way for us to be able to kill four toughness creatures, which were popping up at the time, thanks sure. to uh, uh, the the Green Stompy deck. But as uh, you know, they banned Once Upon a Time, things like that. Like you just don't need 
to do that anymore. It was important. It was very important that the cards at the two drop slot were instant speed so that you could kill something on two at instant speed, untap and play Rabble Master on a clear battlefield. That was huge. And that's one of the reasons why we, we moved to Lightning Strike because we also wanted versatility in our removal spell, being able to kill a creature or go to the face against the control decks. And that was, again, more of a reason for uh, blue-eye control popping up more in the format about a month month and month and change ago. Yeah, so how did the deck kind of evolve? So, like, you know, there was... As when Smuggler's Copter was still legal, so that started to come mm-hmm. in more, of course, as people were like, Oh, yeah, Smuggler's Copter rules. Uh, Kari Zev getting added in the two drop slot. You know, we oh, saw Kari Zev was me. That was, yeah, that that was, was nice. That's, that's a good card. Um, you know, we saw Hanwar Garrison and Legion mm-hmm. Warboss kind of showing up. And then, you know, and then early December, Torbran shows up, which seems kind of like a really obvious inclusion, right? But it wasn't added till a little bit later. Well, a lot of it was because of the colorless lands, because uh, there was a long time when, when we had Hanwar Garrison in the deck, we would also play Hanwar Battlements because the the meld is very powerful. But oh yeah, but secretly Hanwar Garrison uh, is just good because it has three toughness, and similarly Hanwar Battlements, the land is good because you just get to give Rabble Master haste sometimes, or or, or your Torbran or, or or your Bone Crusher Giant. All those cards are great with. Uh, the ability to give them haste. And it was another one of those lands like Castle Embereth that just gave you something to do with your mana. And so that's that's why we played it. Why do you think it's come in and out of style? Like the the Hanwar Garrison card. Where it's oh, sometimes it's because it's in there, I cut it. It's not. <laughs> oh, it's it's because no, it's hundred percent because I cut it. Uh I I don't mean to like talk to my own horn, but both classics that were played in the last like three weeks at the Star City Games uh um opens right i the 75s were or at the very least the the first winner was my 75 it was some, it was my 75 that i five voted prelim with that i worked on the night before just like off stream came back in the morning played it on stream five owed and then a month later there was no major pioneer tournaments the first one the guy was just handed my 75 didn't even know i talked to him he didn't even know it was me like and I knew it was me because it was like I had four Tormod's Crypts in my deck. Who, who the hell plays four Tormod's Crypts on their side? Not me, sir. When you can play Grafdigger's Cage or Leyline or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah. What made you want to cut it? Uh, the Hanwar Garrison. Yeah. Um, mostly I thought that I I didn't really need to play with Hanwar Battlements anymore, and I thought that the synergy between Goblin Rabble Master and Legion Warboss was actually relevant. And Ooh. also that instant speed or not instant, the, the, the immediacy of creating the token was slightly more desirable than the plus one toughness. And because Teferi three was starting to see a huge uptick in play. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of Rob Master and Legion War Boss. Like I love goblins, big fan of this deck once again. And not having to attack is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Like being able to move to combat and not have to put your attacker or, you know, put your rabble master or war boss in risk is huge. And they can mm-hmm. sit back there and generate value for you. But Garrison has to put itself out there. And three toughness is big and it can survive a lot of combat, but you don't have to risk it. There's no math involved. You just get to make the token and move on. Uh, yeah, that that's part of it. I, I think the immediacy of being able to create a token to kill Teferi 3 once it minus and bounce something was like... It's so annoying to play against if you can't immediately kill it. And both of the creatures in three drop slot with with uh, War Boss and and Rowmaster have the ability to do that. Now, with that said, in my most recent article, I actually recommended a move back 
to Hanwar Battlements and, and Hanwar Garrison because there's not a whole lot of blue-eye control running around. And those two cards are really good in the mirror because, A, you have more hasty things your opponent might not be able to handle, and three toughness on the Garrison is much better than the War Boss because it survives Wild Slash and Stomp. So it's yeah. more it's more of the, the this is just like a living entity and it's it just need you just need to make a small change here a small change there depending on what people are throwing at you and that's just one of the the things and that's sort of with, with the beauty of a mid range deck right is that you constantly get to look at the you know you figure out what the tent poles of the deck really are and then you get to tweak everything based on the meta right yeah it feels like things have been fairly stable for like the past three or four weeks right there's kind of two builds right there's there's your build that does that kind of a shoes chain chain whirler and then there's a chain whirler build that has the four chain whirlers and because of the three color pips it can't really run as many muta vaults so it usually has about two muta vaults and those are kind of where things have sort of stabilized until now we have the uh, the new Theros set and things are going to shake up again, right? Mm-hmm. No, and there's actually quite a few cards in the new set that I think have some potential in the archetype that I want to try out at the very least. Um, but for the most part, the, the, the thing you need to understand is that the normal chunky red deck that I've been playing for a while now um, puts Mutavolt to one of the best uses I've, I've ever seen. Like, it, it's just, it is one of the best Mutavolt decks I've ever played. And because of that, it is, I have been quite fond of it, and if you want to put in chain weather, you just have to cut them, or you have to cut down on them significantly. And um, my personal experience in testing the archetype, I had very little success with with Chain Whirler. I was playing against a lot of control decks where it was mostly useless. I was playing against, um, you know, like a bunch of the uh, a bunch of different decks where it just didn't matter. And I was also combining that with occasionally drawing one of the two Muta Vaults still left in the deck. And also yeah. drawing Chain Whirler and just not being able to cast it. And I, every time I did, I was like, and I w- and I would stream all of this. So everyone watching would also be like, oh yeah, it's bad there. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> bad there. And so I had, I had like probably two or three leagues where I was testing out Chain Whirler, and it was just never good. And so sure. I just stopped playing it. I don't know. All right, we've been kind of I think beating around the bush of the the cards and the and the, and the deck construction. So let's just get into it. So I I think I think it, and Todd, I'm actually curious about your thoughts on these categories. We kind of broke things up into aggressive creatures, mm-hmm. burn spells, creatures that are also burn spells. <laughs> you, you kind of have like your, your sneaky win cons, your free win cards, like your goldfish cards, and then your planeswalker or maybe planeswalkers and cool lands. So what we'll do here is I think we should just kind of, we'll go over the cards in the deck. You can tell us and uh, Dave and Zach, I think, played a little bit more than me. I'll play MC. You guys all play Peanut Gallery. Tell me about these cards, what you think about them, how they fit into the strategy of the deck, and and kind of how essential they are to making things tick. The first cards that I think come to mind with this deck, and we've talked about them a little bit, are the combination of Goblin Ramble Master and Legion War Boss, right? So I, I guess the main question I had, we already talked about how powerful these are as threats, and part of the, the one of the benefits that you love about them is the way that they can send a token towards the Fairy 3 after a bounce trigger. My question with, with Rabble Master whenever I play it is, how precious do I have to be about running this card out into um, against a deck that I know might have some removal, and or how risk-averse should I be about that? Do you, do you feel like there's a way to kind of think about that or kind of a heuristic that you use to, to guide you when you're doing that? Uh, I'm I'm one of the most patient players with the deck. I 
there was one game in the preliminary where I five owed with it where I didn't play a spell for the first six turns because my opponent didn't. And we were playing like this weird game where we were just hitting land drops and my hand was just like bone crusher two rabble masters or something. And I just waited and because both of us are, you know, if I'm hitting land drops, why do I, why do I buy it first? You know, I totally agree with that and pioneer a hundred percent. I think yeah. that's the right way to go. And like, there's a ton of removal, right? So mm -hmm. I think you really at least want to get a token out of it because it sticks around and that can mess things up. Like you mentioned, it can kill Teferi later and that's huge. It can hit a Narset after and that's pretty huge too. And just in general, I think it's in modern, maybe I think you jam it out a little more and say, have an answer, like answer this or lose the game. But in Pioneer where games are a little more lengthy and there's more grind, I think you do hold on to it until there's a moment where you can really capitalize on it. Yeah. Are you trying to just kind of extract maximum value out of every card? I mean, for the most part, economy? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> It's all it's all contextual, though. I mean, there there are some sometimes where my hand is kind of glutted with spells and then I just jam. There's no reason to hold on to the everything. But if I have, you know, like four lands and two two relevant spells in hand and I know that my opponent's probably going to tap out on the next turn for something and I'll just wait and then I'll wait to make sure I guarantee to get my token. Yeah, 100%. I'd rather kill a creature at their end step and then play a rabble master into a clear board than play a rabble master and hope they don't do something. No, for sure. There's this uh, theory I've been kind of spitballing for a while. Just it's it's just centered around initiative, and a, and a lot of games use the word in, in a way that is different from from Magic. I think where you just literally try to be the first person that has something on the table, and then you use that thing to dictate the pace and the texture of the rest of the game. And so if you uh, play a Goblin Roundmaster or War Boss and you make a token out of it and your opponent goes untap, kill it, and they don't play anything else, you have initiative. Until that token is dead, you have control of the board and it is your job to pressure your opponent as much as possible without overextending until they match you, right? And um, and and so, like, I, I think that this deck utilizes that principle quite nicely because of the way that your cards do leave something behind a lot of times. Yeah. Todd, why do you think Warboss is kind of one of the few flex spots in the deck? Not for you. I know that you're you're very much, you know, anti-Chain Whirler, pro-Warboss. But even then, it's still like a two-of in the non-Chain Whirler deck. I mean, for me, uh, ever, deck building is, is, is more of a an art than a science where I'm just kind of painting a picture and sometimes it looks good. Sometimes it looks bad. And I can't really give you a definitive answer why I'm only playing two Legion war boss. It just looked right at the time and it felt good. Uh, I kind of just wanted six copies of goblin Rabble master and I didn't want eight and all, all the other numbers kind of fit. And sometimes it's just as much as a, Oh, aesthetic. This is the, an aesthetically pleasing number in this line of three drops like on magic online when I'm deck building. And that's, that's the truth that it's, I can't, I, and a lot of it I think is lizard brain stuff that I just cannot explain. I can't physically explain to you why I did it. Sure. Oh, I love three drops. I, I love it so much. And what, what are you going to do? Right. I think it's a great point to be like, I like having six army and a can cards. Right. And I didn't want the full set. And this is the other one that's good. And I didn't like the other options that there were in chain whirler. And so this, this is what I'm going with. I, I mean, I, I think the, the tokens are just hyper important to the strategy. I mean, we, you know, every token can matter because of Torbrand and Castle Embrith and even Ember Cleave. Like, you know, there, there's a million things that. Do you feel like there's a big functional difference between Warboss and Rabble Master that people should be aware of when they're, when they're throwing Warboss out there? Like, what's the number one thing that you keep in mind? Uh, the number one thing you keep in mind is whether or not you can clear out the the next couple of creatures your opponent is going to play. Um, because 
your tokens are going to get eaten up, right? But if you play Rabble Master, all your goblins have to attack every time. With, with whereas War Boss, only the one you create that turn has to attack. So if depending on which what your what matchup you're playing against or what particular situation you may find yourself in, you need to be cognizant of that downside. And if your opponent is unlikely to play another creature, or you're very likely to kill the creature they play to block, Rao Master's damage output is two or three times higher than Legion War Bosses. So you just need to try to leverage. Rao Master when you can because of the damage. Totally correct. And there's like a part two to this where if your opponent has a removal and you have to play one of them, I would play War Boss first because of that reason where its damage output is a little slower. So if one has to get removal, I'd rather War Boss eat removal than Rao Master does. No, definitely true. Sequencing is a huge part. Playing around certain removal spells and such is definitely important. I think we got to talk about Soul Scar Mage because sure. this, this card is is very sneaky cool in this deck and i I think you you don't realize what it's doing for this deck i think more than a lot of the modern red prowess decks where it's like it's one of your beaters in this deck it can be a beater but i think it has a lot of other utility and so in in case you're not familiar it's it's just a single red mana for a one two it's a prowess creature which means when you uh, cast a instant or sorcery it gets plus one plus one but here's the cool part in this deck if a source you control would deal non-combat damage to a creature an opponent controls, put that many minus one, minus one counters on that creature instead. Yeah, this text like literally never comes up when you're playing this card in mono red prowess and modern. Like you never have to do it. You're really just trying to jam and go as fast as possible and manamorphose so, someone to death. I think it's also important to note that in modern, uh, Soulscar Mage is actually just a worse Monastery Swift Spear. And yes. Monastery Swift Spear is a legal magic card in Pioneer that I can play instead of Soulscar Mage. So I've actually made the decision to play Soulscar Mage over the other choices. And why is that? A number of reasons. And it, it actually was in flux for quite some time. Uh, before Feel the Dead was banned, uh, me and Killjarn both agreed that um, Legion Loyalist was actually the best one drop because it made the zombies unable to block. So you could actually Alpha Strike through your opponent's uh, zombie tokens, which was really cool. Uh, it also gives uh, um, Goblin Rao Master First Strike and Trample, so the buff that it gets from all the other goblins is more of permanent than normal because you can't just jump block it and prevent the damage and trade off with Rao Master, so it makes blocking it basically impossible. Um, but after Field of Dead got banned, uh, Legion Lolas was a bit worse, so we tried to figure out something else, and... Um, I actually thought Fanatical Firebrand was going to be it. Killgerm stayed on Legion Lolas because it was still really good for him a lot of times. And Fanatical Firebrand was pretty poopy. And so, uh, right, that was the plan. Was That was still when Once Upon a Time was legal, I think. So I was still aware of it. Or maybe it was banned at the same I forget. Uh, anyway, it was there because elves were still around, and I wanted to kill the elves. But the more that I played with the archetype, the more I realized I need that creature to have some amount of mid-game potential. And Fanatical Firebrand doesn't really have that much. And Legion Loyalist did. And so I was kind of missing out on it. But with the rise of the Stompy decks, the negative counter effect of Soulscar Mage actually became fairly desirable. And so that was a pretty clean switch. And even though you don't have a whole lot of uh, ways to actually trigger the prowess, it's fine enough just attacking for two on, on turn two when you kill a creature. It's fine enough attacking for three when you double burn your opponent on turn five. Like, it's just a one drop that has a reasonable amount of damage output and solves a complex problem that red decks have been trying to deal with for years, which is kill a large creature. 
Yeah, Dave, you, you're a big Mono Red Prowess player. How did you find using Soulscar Mage in this deck versus the Prowess deck? Well, did you like it? Did you find it weird? It completely confused me at first <laughs> because I'm so used to seeing it and being like, I'm throwing this down and then I'm just going to attack and just unload all the burn out of my hand. And I, I found really quickly when I was playing with this deck that that just obviously doesn't work because we're in a mid-range deck. You're supposed to use your burn to kill creatures. You're not supposed to use it to, to go to face unless you're really ready to kill your opponent. And so um, I definitely, it definitely took a mind shift for me, but I, I a hundred percent think it makes sense in this context. I just think it's a good thing for us to talk about here. So if, if you're going to pick up this deck and you're used to playing aggro with soul scar mage, don't use it the way that you used it before. It really is in here because like Todd said, it has mid range potential to help you get through large blockers and have your burn spells power up to be able to either trick someone in combat or even just shrink somebody down to be able to, to get them out of the way eventually. Yeah, 100%. It's better to save a burn spell and not get that extra prowess point than to not be able to kill a you know troublesome blocker later. Uh, are y'all familiar with the Galaxy Brain meme? Oh, we talk about Galaxy Brain all the time. You do, Well, you do the tiers, right? It's like normal brain, smart guy, smart, slightly smart guy, right? So like f- level one is like use Soulscar Mage as, uh, the, as the prowess where you just like deal a lot of damage, right? Middle of that's like you've realized, okay, well, I should actually use this more of a way to shrink stuff. And then the last one is literally just throw a bunch of burn spells at your opponent to pump it. That's <laughs> yeah. the galaxy. Because yeah. it's it's a circle because there are it's all contextual. Sure, again. sure, sure. It the matters on the matchup, of, right? Right. Like there there are a lot of matchups where I turn one Soulscar Mage, turn two, shock you twice, attack for three. <laughs> Let's go. That's just the most damage you're gonna get out of those cards. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, when you're sitting there across from, like you said, someone who plays a hallowed fountain, there's not much else you're saving yeah, shot yeah, for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And before we move on to more creatures, and like we'll talk about this later, but this is mid-range and big red in general is a sort of deck style where you need to know what your opponent's on and identify what they're on pretty quickly to know how to spend your cards best. Because if you hold on to those shocks for too long and don't spend against a deck like you play control, they're going to get countered and they'll be wasted. And then a game that you could have won is now them winning at three life. All right, last I think of the aggro creatures right now is Kari Zev, Sky Ship Raider. Uh, she's one in a red for a 1-3 legendary human pirate with first strike and menace, which I think comes up an awful lot of times. Whenever she attacks, she makes Ragavan, which is a little 2-1 red monkey creature token, which I still don't have from my deck, and it makes oh, me mad. Fool. Um, and he enters the battlefield tapped and attacking and then gets exiled. So he shows up. You know, gets in there and then gets exiled, goes away, back to her shoulder. Shane, off mic, I'll sell you a signed token later. Ooh, thank you. So, what do you all? What do you Wait, think who's about it signed by? It's, who's it's signed by? by me, Todd. How dare you? <laughs> okay. all right, all right. So, what do I think about Carrie Zev? Um, well, it's certainly a two-drop threat, which is exactly what the deck needs, but not so many that it's a huge part of your overarching strategy. There are just some matchups where having a two drop threat is pretty important because it scales a little bit better than the one man threats. Um, but you also uh, on turn two, a lot of times are just casting stomp to lead into bone crusher giant. So if you if you overload on the two drop slot, like you're going to find yourself not getting full value to bone crusher or just not having a great turn three, a lot of times. So, um, outside of that, I think carries just has, again, the three toughness, which I pointed out earlier, uh, with the, um, Hanor Garrison, which was good, was uh, similarly why we chose carries It also attacks for three, which not a lot of two drops do out of red. And also it's kind of hard to block. 
this is a card that I love to mentor with Legion War Boss. Love sure. making this a two four. Why the heck not? This is a card that has been in and out of scred decks in the past of questionable viability, but I really like that it has a solid home here in Pioneer. Yeah, I, li- I like this card a lot because I think the the menace makes it so easy to just get in there and like get make them have to either you know put two creatures in the Karizev, which they don't u- typically want to do, or they have to block the the Ragavan token. So it's just I think it's a really good way to get some damage in there. And like I think you like you said, Zach, you know, mentoring it with War Boss is sweet too because it's a menace creature and two four. Now, Dave, before we started, you actually talked a bit about uh, playing with the deck a lot. What do you think about Carry Zeph? Because I, I just want more perspective on the card because I like it, but like it, it's definitely replaceable. I mean, I think the big thing here is that it makes two threats, right? That it has the token. The token has a lot of resiliency because it can just, you don't care if it just gets chump locked and goes away. Right. And I think the the other thing is that the synergy with Torban is like pretty amazing when you actually have that Yahtzee. Basically, we were like, okay, I'm attacking <laughs> with all this stuff, and now this makes two tokens. And so it's a nice kind of on it's on theme with the uh, army in a can cards. It's just a cheaper mana cost. So I thought this is really good. I thought it was perfect as a two of. Now you want to hear a funny little story or a funny little trick with with Ragavan. Ragavan just turns your wild slashes and your stomps into four damage burn spells because everyone blocks Ragavan, dude. No one can ever block Carry Zev, and they're so afraid of dying to random stuff. They always block Ragavan, and you always get to combo kill their creature with stomp or wild slash. It's awesome. And they can never block the Carry Zev because it has menace and it's and has first strike. So like they can't double block because then you just first strike down their one toughest creature and then kill their other thing. Exactly. I mean, this is like how you kill a Steel Leaf champion in this deck, other than right. with Soulscar right. Mage out, is they block Ragavan and you shock it. So that's a great point. So speaking of burn, um, you know, the, the burn package that's in the deck basically is Wild Slash Stomp. And lightning strike. I think everybody's familiar with with those cards, and we'll talk a little bit about more about Bone Crusher Giant in a minute. Uh, anybody? I mean, what kind of thoughts do we have about the way? You know, we've talked a bit already about it, not employing the burn plan for burn all the time, or by default that it's mostly for creature removal. Does anybody else have any other kind of tips or tricks about how to use yeah. a burn? Don't buy Wild Slash. It's five dollars. Just buy a Shock. Just play your Shocks. They've been good enough for the past 27 years or whatever. They're still good. Just just buy Shock. Man, that's it. Just play Shock. It's fine. No one cares. Yeah, Zach, have you, have you ever bought Wild Slash, Zach? No, I have not. Good. And I came. You're the biggest red player I came. Here. Well, I had a bunch, and then I donated it a few years ago because it was bulk. It was bulk. No one plays Shock before Pioneer. It was bulk. I, I gave it away to the needy. Yeah. And now here I am contemplating a $20 purchase that I won't make anymore. Thank you, Todd Anderson. Look, they ban. Look, they ban Nexus of Fate. Fog no longer sees heavy play. Y- you already have Stomp. True. Just play Shock, dude. It's fine. Yeah, I've seen the light, and the light says, "Don't spend twenty dollars." I'm gonna trust that light. <laughs> Just play a mix, so if someone un- unmoored egos you, then you oh, yeah. get to keep a couple. Or Medley uh, Mage is legal, right? Is it? Mm-mm. No, it's no. I don't want to live in that world. But anyway, like we said, you know, the burn in this deck. This isn't really a burn deck unless you're in a situation where you need to use the burn cards for that. It's mostly for removal. Did you do you sideboard the burn out much in in matchups against things like combo? I, I kind of was 50-50 and wasn't sure. I mean, I definitely was bringing in whatever my spell punisher card was, whether that was Scab Clan Berserker or Eidolon for burn here and there. But is that kind of the general thought? Uh, so the 
the car, the lightning strikes actually come out more than the shocks, even though they have higher oh, yeah, damage. For sure. Just the ability to cast them for one is huge for not only Soul Scar Mage, but just for natural curve considerations. And a lot of times, shock actually kills any planeswalker that ticks down. So if a, if you play against like a fairy of either variety, or uh, I think Narset is. S- Narset going from three to one is actually just fine for you, right? You just don't want anyway. Sure. Mo- most most planeswalkers that take down Wild Slash will kill them. So uh, whenever I side out burn spells, I usually side out Lightning Strike. That was kind of my go-to as well because it's like you know three damage for two mana, not the most efficient thing. If it's a non-creature matchup, or I don't worry about you know, or, or uh, one of the things too is I I noticed that if I didn't have a lot of good targets for it like they didn't have things that lightning strike would even do much against it just seemed kind of really inefficient and so i found myself you know bringing it out because if i have to rely on it rely on soul scar mage and lightning strike to to chip creatures down a little bit it's not always where i want to be but maybe i played it wrong probably did I mean, it's all contextual, man. I, don't beat yourself up. This deck is extremely hard to play, and sideboarding is the most difficult part of Magic. Sideboarding is the most difficult part of Magic, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about the sideboard for this deck in a little bit because I think that's where a lot of the edges are gained and lost, and I think I lost quite a bit. Um, but I think one of the most fun set of cre- uh, cards and, and creatures in this deck are the ones that double as burn spells. So Dave mentioned Stomp, which is the spell side of Bonecrusher Giant, who's our big two and a red for a four three. That also has like kind of a the Punisher effect, where if, if it gets targeted, it deals two damage to that spell's controller. So, you know, hopefully the the dream play is is you stomp something of theirs, you play it onto the battlefield, they spend their Wild Slash or excuse me their Lightning Strike to remove it, and they take two damage off it. So it's a nice two for one, maybe three for one in your favor. Yeah, no, Bone Crusher is one of the best cards in the deck simply because of its versatility uh, and um, how it operates on the curve. Like I said, a lot of times it's about how much mana you use in the early turns of the game. And one of the reasons why we play Muta Vault and are heavy on Muta Vault is because it allows us to, to spend the most mana uh, between myself and my opponent. Now, Bone Crusher Giant just being a uh, a two drop and a three drop by itself means that you can keep a lot of hands that have Glorybringer, Bone and Crusher Giant, four land, and the last spell is irrelevant. Like it, you know, and then those types of hands are just keepable. It's great. Absolutely. And Bone Crusher Giant is one of those cards that, like Ramanap Ruins we talked about earlier, your opponent, when it's on an adventure, just has to consider at all times, right? Like they have to go, okay. On their turn, they can play a 4-3 that I have to deal with, or if they have three cards in hand, et cetera, et cetera. It just is one of those cards where it's like, all right, I'm tapped out, I'm red, your turn. And your opponents go, ah, ah. And I like that. I like making my opponent make more decisions than me. Awesome. Yeah, tough to argue with Bone Crusher Giant. It's probably one of the best cards that's been printed for red in the last year, for sure, and uh, it's excellent. So let's talk about <laughs> Glorybringer. For a minute, blast, blast from Amonkhet standards past. Really powerful that thing card ruled back then. Disguise. Yeah, it definitely did. Uh, as people know, Glorybringer, 4 4 dragon for five with flying haste. And if you exert it, it deals four damage to target non dragon creature and opponent controls. So it doesn't untap the next time. But that is a deal with Glorybringer. Remember the non dragon creature part because <laughs> yeah. I definitely have forgotten that. I was like, I, I was, I was playing on stream, which I don't do often, but 
a little uh, anecdote. So I was playing against the mirror and I kept, I had a glory bringer in my hand and I was like, well, I need to not play this because if I play it, then they can play their glory bringer for more value. And I was like, oh, wait, they can't hit my glory bringer. And like, I just like, they played theirs and then I played mine out and I was like exerting it. And I was like, what, why, why can't, why can't I target their glory? Bring-? Oh, because I'm an idiot. So remember that. I tried because- to do that, but against Nico Bolas, the ravager, <laughs> that didn't work out great either. Yeah. You get, you get bit once and you don't get bit again though. No. That's the yeah. Thing. One time. No, it's worse when, uh, when you play uh thing in the ice thing, in the ice is really bad about it. Cause there are just some random creatures that are horrors throughout magic history that, that are cropping up in pioneer just cause the, there's just new homes for everything. Sure. But uh, like the other day I played against woe strider, uh, it's a horror. I don't know if you know oh, that. The new, I did not the new realize that was the title. That's horror. horrifying, Todd. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that. So this was one of the, it sounded earlier when we were talking, like you felt like this was one of the definitive ads to the deck. Oh, for sure. It was originally Reality Smasher in that uh, kind of Eldrazi core. And then we we molded it more into a big red deck. And for a long time, we still played Thought Knots here. And, and this was, uh, this actually might've been like right before Torbrand got got printed or either that or it had not been out very long and it, it was more of like a i don't want to say it's a joke card but it was like everyone kind of was like okay this is just red's new thing like they're you know it's not very good it's really splashy it's good for commander but no it's just <laughs> it's just really good and anyway uh but the reason why we we're playing Glorbringer is because uh mostly because of caleb derward watching him play the um uh, four color. I forgot. I called it Rhino Glory. Yeah, like Siege Rhino, Rhino and yeah. Glorybringer and Bring to Rhino. Yeah, it was kind of like the original version of the Niv Mizzet deck in, in Pioneer, even though that version had existed in uh, modern for quite some time. But um, yeah, Glorybringer was just pretty early on identified as one of the marquee five drops in the format simply because it gains immediate value. And if people are playing fair, it was one of the best fair cards when it was in standard. It was literally just a giant thing that dumpstered a creature, and that's what you needed exactly. And in Pioneer, there's so much combat, there's so much hitting the battlefield running that uh, just having a creature like Glorybringer is just invaluable. Yeah, it hits so many things. Right. Like, you know, it's just like you said, it just can destroy Kalidus. It can hit a Steel Leaf champion. So many things you want off the board, it does the job. You know, my favorite thing to hit with it, though, is Teferi Time Raveler. <laughs> Get rid of that guy. <laughs> yes. So I can actually play my Rabble Masters, please. And a Kalidus at the same time. Yeah. Dude, it's what I loved, <laughs> I loved almost killing Okos with it. That's what I <laughs> almost. loved. My favorite thing in Magic <laughs> is my red spells almost remove Oko from the game. Oh, yeah. Do the elks on tap when they've been when they're they're exerted or no? <laughs> this elk is beat. Yeah, I don't know actually. That's the real question. I'm never going to be able to answer. We don't have to worry about it anymore, at least because exert's not a real keyword. It's like a side word. I don't even know exactly. <laughs> it's not really even a real ability. It's a made up thing. <laughs> it's all of it's made up. <laughs> uh, now they did come with little papers that you put on the cards, and those helped. <laughs> the little tokens, yeah, a little Chuck E. Cheese action. Let's go. So we we got to talk about Chain Roller a little bit because right. we know that you're not on it, but a lot of people are. It's so bad. That's our, Next, that's 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 our our triple red <laughs> three three with first strike. When it comes when it ETBs, it deals one damage to each opponent and each creature and planeswalker. 
they control. So this is kind of one of the argument pieces of the deck, right? It's like, you know, the proponents will say it's awesome with Soulscar Mage. It's really awesome with Torbran. And then, you know, you will say that cutting Mutavolts way too, way too bad. You can't cut Mutavolts. And that's going to be necessary because Chain Whirler's mana requirements. Mm-hmm. So I did a league with Chain Whirler and a league without Chain Whirler. Mm-hmm. I actually went 4-1 in both leagues. Just barely oh, missed. Humble brag. And, wow, just a, dude, you did, you did better than I did on leagues today. <laughs> that was, <laughs> this, is, this is a rare occurrence, trust me. Sure. And um, the interesting thing to me about Chain Whirler was it mostly was really clumsy, but I feel like it, it was responsible for me getting some damage through against Mono Green Ramp a couple of times where they got um, the Elvish Rejuvenator and... Uh, Lanawar elves out there at the same time and it was kind of like that was a deck where it was late enough for me to play it against stompy decks the tempo is definitely not doesn't line up for chain whirler versus Lanawar elf at all right so that was kind of a side benefit i think i'm definitely on team mutavolt so I'm, i would go back to that version but yeah, no the tempo is terrible and to really echo what shane's saying chain whirler is good when you have a soscar mage when you have a torbrin but it really only shines, in my opinion, when you have these other cards where Mutavolt is just kind of good all the time. And it's made better by other cards, but has just a much higher floor than Chain Whirler does. Or maybe Chain Whirler has a much higher ceiling because it has this synergy. But in general, I think you're getting much more value out of Mutavolt. Todd, any parting thoughts on Chain Whirler? Uh, yeah, parting thoughts are I played a bunch with it and it was always bad for me. Um the, the end. It was not, I never had any success with it. There's the definitive know. word. I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, some of the most prominent one toughness creatures in the format are Lenoirels and Elvish Mystic, and you cannot wait to kill them. You just can't yeah. do it. What a, what about if if Mono Black is like still 15% of the meta? Like, I think Mono Black is one of the decks that you kind of can expect to see in, not necessarily a league, but probably in like a, one of the pioneer prelims or probably at like a, a GP or something like that. I think you can expect to see mono black a few times. Is it still not necessary with all those one toughness creatures on the other side? The mono black matchup can be tough. Don't get me wrong. They have a lot of resiliency. So if you have a, a draw that features a bunch of spot removal spells and, and not a lot of those big threats that close the game, they're going to be able to rebuy their scrap heap scroungers and their uh, blood soak champions and such. So you need ways to actually close the game with your spot removal. and uh, But if you play Goblin Chain Whirler instead, Goblin Chain Whirler actually buys you a ton of time against them. It is very strong. It kills a lot of their early threats, and it has a stout body that doesn't die to Fatal Push. Uh, but the thing is, like, you never really punish your opponent for not being able to block. And that deck can't block. Like, none of their creatures can block. They're not designed to play defense in the slightest. So Rabble Master and War Boss are home runs. And while Chain Whirler is certainly great against them and has a lot of viability in other other builds and against other matchups, personally, I just think that the the war boss right now is just slightly better. Sure. Let, let's talk about kind of like these sort of goldfish win cons or like kind of the the out of the out of the blue sneaky win cons. And I think the cards I'd put there are Torbran, Thrain of Redfell. So that's one red, red, red for a two, four. If a red source you control would deal damage to an opponent or a permanent an opponent controls, it deals that much damage plus two instead. So everything you do deals two more damage, does not suck. I mean, I won a lot of games with Torbran. I will, I will say that where I was looking at the board, it felt like I didn't really have a way to close out the game fast enough and then would top deck Torbran and just kind of go to town suddenly. 
both from the burn side and from being able to just turn a rabble master and a bunch of tokens into a much more potent threat. Um, so it's great as far as having something to have late game closing power suddenly. And, you know, it's a perfect two of in a deck like this, I think. No, I mean, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I think Torbrand does exactly what you needed to do in the spots where you need it to do. Uh, because it's legendary, you don't want to play too many of it. But also, it will single-handedly win games that you cannot win otherwise because your Wild Slashes and Lightning Strikes and Stomps do two extra damage. All of your tokens, uh, including Ragavan, as well as the Legion War Boss and Railmaster tokens, all do two extra. And you're just going to find yourself stealing games that you were very far behind because you just happened to draw this four-mana legendary creature. Zach, I feel like you kind of identified this card really early on as a red mage, a card you wanted to play. How were you using it You know, any differently than this deck's using it? Oh, um, I mean, originally in Pioneer, I was playing like a Chandra tribal build with this. So not really the same. That was more like a red control than like a red mid-range that could possibly go fast. But I love Torbrun in here. Like it's really most of the time the perfect top deck you can hope for when you've like have the four mana and have any sort of anything on the board it just gets there instantly i like this card i'm really excited about it for me it was more grindy and like attrition based but i think it's just better as like a oh i have a board state already and this just makes it okay i win now yeah, it's like it's like an overrun with a four four attached imagine if overrun yeah did not die to a bunch of removal in the format wouldn't that be cool right one question I have for you, Todd, is why not a three of? You know, why not kind of the legendary playset where you know if you want to see one of your legendaries, you're going to run three of them. It's such a good card; it synergizes so well. Why only play two? Uh, I mean, you kind of answered your own question a little bit there. It is legendary, and if you draw two of them, it's usually really bad. It's also one of those cards where it's so late in the curve that it's unlikely to die because your opponent had to kill your Soul Scar Mage, and then your Goblin Round Master, and then your backup Goblin Round Master, and then. Oh, but if they kill Torbrand, then they're just getting sent to the graveyard by this Glorybringer next turn, you know. Um, one huge consideration is the fact that it costs three red, and you're you are playing four copies of Mutavault. So if you ever draw two copies of Mutavault and and two copies of Torbrand, the game's over. You can't win because you can't cast anything. Um, so we we kind of mitigate that a little bit by only playing two copies, but three were certainly in the deck for for some time. Um, I, I think for a while it was actually two Chandra, three Torbrand, and then Ch- Chandra just was excellent, so we just added another one. And I've even had a couple builds that played four copies of Chandra because it's so good. Um, but Torbrand is one of those things. It's it's like a it's like a Hershey chocolate bar, right? Like you, you eat about uh, two or three bites of a big Hershey chocolate bar and you're like, wow, chocolate is the best. Right. And then and then you get about halfway through it and you're like this. I'm going to have to save some of this for later. This is too much. <laughs> and then you're a fat guy like me and you just eat the whole thing. And afterwards, you just feel miserable. So, <laughs> Why did I do this? Yeah, it's uh Torban is chocolate. It's just it's better in moderation. Just don't overdo it. You know, I mean, he is Toblerone. So mm. so if Torban is chocolate, is Ember Cleave like dark chocolate? Like, it's part of the same cut, right? Where you don't want that much of it, and it's good and limited. Like, if Torbrand's two, Embercleave's a one, right? Uh, it's. I wouldn't say that it... I would say that it is something like Marshmallow, where it pairs <laughs> very nicely in small doses with chocolate. Sure. Okay. And is occasionally okay by itself if there's a fire going, you know. That's perfect. The, it's a red deck. The there's a lot part, of fire. 
Um, yeah. Zach, Zach, tell us a little bit about Embercleave, because that's one of the most novel cards, one of the newest cards in the deck. Sure. So Embercleave is six mana, four and two red, although ideally you're not paying that. Legendary artifact equipment. It has flash. It costs one less for each attacking creature you control. And when it enters, you get to attach it to a creature you control. So, hey, pretty cool. Equip creature gets plus one, plus one, double strike, and trample. Those are very good effects. Equip cost is three. So actually not that high when it comes to it, because usually if you can cast this, you're casting it for three, probably after a rabble master and a token are attacking, something like that. Maybe a rabble master and two tokens, et cetera, et cetera. But when it's on the battlefield, it's not hard to move around and start equipping. I love this card. I have two in my main because I like to lose games. Yeah. So, so how does this typically play out, right? Like, so you have this in your hand. And you swing with three or four creatures, whichever one doesn't get blocked, or maybe if one does get blocked and you just want to kill whatever's getting blocked, you just flash this thing out there and get a bunch of damage through, right? All right. So Embercleave is like Torbrand, uh, a card that you never really want to draw more than one of, but it's also situationally worse than Torbrand when you're behind. Uh, Torbrand can sometimes come down when you're a little bit behind as long as you can play it and it doesn't die. You get to untap occasionally and kill your opponent. Embercleave is a card that if you're ahead, kills your opponent on the spot. But if you're behind, it is an unplayable magic card that does nothing. Yeah. And I think anyone who's played any amount of the card in standard knows exactly that because a lot of those decks play four of them and you try to pair it with a big monster. And if that felt falls through, you lose. The game is over. So we, we try not to be too all in on something like that. But I also recognize that there are matchups like uh, Lotus Field or Ramp or other decks that spot removal is generally bad against. And those are the matchups where one Ember Cleave is going to save your bacon. And that's why I have one main and one in the sideboard. One main, you draw it sometimes when you need it. Second one comes in. And hey, you got some more. <laughs> So speaking of equipment, really quick, this might be a good time to ask about a new one that was debuted in Theros Beyond Death in Shadow Spear. So this is a card that I've tested out a little bit and had some pretty fun success with. How do you feel about it in this chonky red build? Uh, I I haven't tried it myself, but I think um, you could maybe build the deck significantly differently to utilize it. Uh, does it? I, I forget. It gives lifelink and what? It gives plus one, plus one, lifelink and trample. And then you can also pay one and permanence your opponent's control, lose indestructible lose and hexproof. I think that effect is not as desirable in this deck simply because uh, hexproof creatures that see play in the format are just you're not going to be able to draw the equipment and be able to kill the creature in time. They have hexproof, but usually because your opponent is suiting a bunch of stuff onto it and, and you just die. No, absolutely. Um, I found the indestructible more helpful. I've been able to get past soul flares and in soul artifacts. Right. My second thing was also the soul scar mage kind of fills that role for okay. you. But if you do want more effects like that, then yeah, it is something that maybe you can sideboard a couple because soul flare is particularly problematic for this deck. Sure. Yeah. I had a tough time with soul flare. I, I could not beat it without. Yeah. <laughs> it was brutal. That, that deck is uh, something else. It's either it's either a 10 or a two. It's never it's never like in between. Yeah. Love decks like that, right? So, so the take on Shadow Spear is open to it. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think most of the cards that have seen play in this archetype uh, in the past, um, I am willing to try again. And anything new that could fit, I'm also just willing to try because they're only, I think Bone Crusher Giant is the only card that I want to play four of. And Glorybringer, maybe, and I could definitely maybe cut one at some point because I've had versions that only play three. And if the format becomes more combo-oriented, shifts definitely just matter. That's interesting. I'm so sorry to ask another question right away. Why not for Rival Master? 
so Rao Master is just a powerful three drop, but it it shines in a format where uh, you can kind of ride your damage um, over the course of a few turns. And I think that there's probably going to be a spot in the format where Goblin Rao Master is just not good because too many people just have too many creatures on the table. If too many creatures are on the table, Goblin Rao Master is not very good. And half the reason why we played Embercleave was because it made Goblin Rao Master significant even uh, against matchups where they had a bunch of creatures on the ground. Nowadays, though, um, it, it's just not its not a sacred cow is all I really want to say. Uh, you know, Bonecrusher awesome. Giant shines. Probably playing for that card no matter what. Everything else, eh, I could take it or leave it. Awesome. All right, the last card we're going to talk about quickly is Chandra Torch of Defiance. The single planeswalker in the deck, it's usually run as a three of right now. I'm not going to read all the abilities on Chandra. I, I did want to talk about this card for a minute. It's funny that you brought up the kind of like sacred cows of the deck a minute ago, because my my impression after playing the deck was that the sacred the like three pillars of the deck were Glorybringer, Rabble Master, and Chandra as being like the keys to having a really aggressive plan, a bit of removal attached to an aggressive plan, and also a, a a card that gives you card advantage and removal in Chandra. And so it felt to me like those were the three cards that I felt like the deck was actually built around. So it's really interesting f- for me to hear you say that maybe Bonecrusher Giant is sort of the one of the cards that's also at that same power level and maybe even stands above kind of everything else as far as like the, the card that you want the most in this deck. I mean, it's the only card I want four of, period. Right. Like everything else I, I could I could cut it entirely. I, I would not care. And I think a lot of that is just because of the the flexibility of Bone Crusher Giant puts it a level ahead of every other card in the deck. And I and I sincerely mean that. I think that um, Bone Crusher Giant is probably the best red card printed in the last ten years. I, I haven't I haven't played with a card in that I thought was better, more powerful. Yes, more powerful. Yeah, but a card that does exactly what a red deck wants to do and kill a creature and provide you with a threat. It is, in my opinion, probably as good as Flame Tongue Kavu. And I haven't seen a card that was as good as Flame Tongue Kavu in probably 15 years. Yeah, that's, that's impressive to hear. Yeah, I think Bonecrusher is great. I'm playing as a four of my modern deck. I like the utility of it. There's times where, like, like we mentioned before, you end step stomp, play it on turn three. There's times where you turn five, stomp, and then play it. The utility of it, the fact that it's you know able to get in for four sometimes, the fact that you can have the Punisher effect. All around, it just does enough and really is there, and I am really excited and happy about it. Who knows? Maybe we'll see more, you know, aggressive costed giants like this. There's that four drop in the new set, maybe cool for Pioneer as well. But I like where this is leading, and I like this card, and I agree. It's a four of in this deck, and it's a four of in, like, it's just good. It's a modern staple to me in red decks at this point, for big red decks at this point. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about it is the mana flexibility, too, where it's like, you know, you... You get it. You can have you have a two drop essentially because you can do something on two if you want to. You can remove something. You can deal damage to your control opponent. Then on three, you can play it if it makes sense there, or you could save it for later and play like a Legion War Boss or a Rabble Master. It's just so flexible, and it just does so many little things. I, I love it. I mean, if you really sit and think about it, the card actually has like seven different casting costs, right? The baseline it costs two. To do anything, it costs two, but that's not where it stops. Uh, it's a two drop that's also a three drop in the turn in the games where you have to have a two drop into a three. Uh, it's a five drop, 
a lot of times you play it on two or with two mana on like turn four while also using lightning strike to kill something or both of them together to kill a large creature. And then later on, you just have this three mana thing kind of floating around. It's it's so unique. There's no real other card in magic to compare it to because the adventure mechanic is just so weird. I think flashback maybe yeah. is the best, but at the same time, like just being able to hard cast it from your hand for three mana on curve is also just very good. Yeah. Yeah. Again, adventure just like proving how amazing of a mechanic it is and how I actually think they did a pretty good job in creating cards that were not fundamentally broken for something that could have easily been broken. <laughs> All right. So we, we talked a lot about the cool lands part earlier. And I think since we're, we're, we're crunched on time a little bit, we can kind of jump through that. If you care about the lands, we talked about those uh, earlier on in the episode. They're very good. Very good lands. Y'all a bunch, a bunch of, a bunch of mountains and some cool utility lands. Um, so let's get into the sideboard a little bit. So mono colored decks don't always get the best sideboard options and, and red. So red does have a little bit of strain in certain areas, I think. Um, but how do you try to mitigate that? So we know we see like three or four Tormod's crypt as kind of the current anti graveyard plan. Do you think that's enough right now? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's certainly given me enough breathing room against the matchup where I'm comfortable with it. Uh, I think playing any more than four of any one type of effect in your sideboard is often a mistake because if that particular matchup requires more than four cards, it's often a bad enough matchup where you shouldn't be playing your deck. And if you can shore up a matchup with four cards, then you should keep playing your deck. You know, um, I, Tormod's Crypt I chose specifically because it uh, is uh, able to gain its effect even through an opponent having an answer to it. And I think a lot of times people just rely way too heavily on stuff like Leyline of the Void or Graft Digger's Cage, and they kind of give themselves this false sense of security when every single dredge or graveyard-based opponent is bringing in four disenchant effects at the minimum. And yeah. it, I chose it because it's all I need. My deck is so strong in the mid game because it's a mid range deck that if you just have the one Tormod script to slow them down, you actually just turn them into a mid range deck. And you're the best mid-range deck. So, the end. Yeah, so if they target it, you can just pop it. You know, you don't lose its value. And it's not as good when that happens. And a lot of times you just got to find the right spot where a Narcomoeba is about to enter the battlefield or two creeping Chills are about to go off and that six life buffer is going to give them two turns when, yeah. you know, you just got to find the right spots to pop it. It's it's it, I, I have ended games before without popping it because my opponent was too scared to make me pop it. And so there's this weird dance where, you know, we I have to find the right spot to use it before they find their Assassin's Trophy or before they can get max value of their Assassin's Trophy or, or Brup Decay or what have you. Um, but uh, the, the long story short is that you just play something like Tormod Script because you're guaranteed to get some effect out of it before it dies. Whereas the others, like your opponent can just, like if you don't have a clock, your opponent just has a bunch of time to kill it and then they get to keep doing their thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I tried out, I tried out Leyline in one of the builds that I had too and I definitely missed missed tormod's crypt it was <laughs> how many how many times did you draw the second ley line? uh fortunately but how many times did you just draw a ley line after your opening hand That's so in one game i threw i drew three ley lines and so that was enough for me to remember why i didn't want to play ley line anymore unless i absolutely had to and hogak's not around so i guess i'm good not doing that i think i think an important cyborg card we should touch on too is scab clan berserker 
because this is interesting to me because I know that Zach is a huge Eidolon of the Great Rebel fan. I was going to say, does it look weird? Because did you think I forgot Eidolon of the Great Rebel existed? Or? No, I mean, we, I mean, I, we, I, <laughs> after playing with Scab Clan, I think you can see the, the, the power level and the utility there for sure. So talk about Scab Clan and how you chose that over Eidolon. I did. It actually was Eidolon for a long time, like a long time, like not long, like a month. It was, it was, I played against Lotus Field and at the time Simic Nexus so much um, that I just was like, okay, I'm not going to lose these decks anymore. I'm going to like play a bunch of Eidolons and, and call it a day, right? And then in the same league, I lost to Simic Nexus and I lost to Lotus Field combo with an Eidolon on the table. They just they just had a bunch of Nexus and you know stalled out at two life both times. And the Lotus Field deck just actually doesn't have a... They have just... Uh, hidden strings is basically their only cheap thing after they start comboing because everything else is uh pour over the pages dig yeah. through time they all cost 20 even 20 man right yeah. and even granted off of uh the the uh, fave wishes uh, cost four so they don't take any damage off of it right. so i lost so many times with an idol on the great rebel on the table that i just said screw it and i just decided to find one that was better. And that for a while that was damping sphere. But after a while I realized that I need that thing to actually attack some. And I need that card to also be good against blue eye control and scab clan. Uh, Berserker was actually just the perfect fit for the spot. Now things can change and things have changed every now and then. Like I'm playing against more arboreal grazers now, and it's significantly worse against arboreal grazer than idol on the great rebel. So, and that is just another one of those spots that's in flux. I just, Personally, I haven't had a major tournament to play with this archetype in over a month. And so this the list that you're seeing keep popping up, still doing well because the deck's just really good. But I would personally change probably like 10, 15 cards in it over the course of like a given two-week stint if I just wanted to make it the best it was going to be in this field. Yeah. I think some other things that you're probably always just sort of have to play in this deck and you know maybe you don't i'd like to hear your opinion on this so a braid sometimes i think you just got to get stuff like aethersphere harvester off the board i think you already have so much creature removal it's probably just is it just for the artifact removal with kind of a little bit of upside so my take on pioneer format as a whole is that you can't have too many cards that don't target creatures if they uh they have some like some sort of targeted ability like boros charm for example i think is an unplayable card in the format because if you have a boros charm in your hand on the play and your opponent plays land or elves you lose the game like you can't like you're not going to deal them enough damage your burn spells aren't good enough no one's playing fetch shock bases so they're not taking as much damage from their lands cards like boros charm and out of outside of the most dedicated burn decks imaginable are bad what if i have feather what if you have feather? I mean, kidding. that's a different. No, yeah. that's a different. Story. I mean, is, or are you just giving it double strike a bunch? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that, that is what I did with it. Was I, I give it double strike and then I would hit somebody with the four? That's worse than defiant strike. Like, I don't know what to tell you. The, the bar is completely different when you have a, a feather on the table. Um, but it's not so much that they're they're unplayable. I, I I use I speak a lot in hyperbole because it's the easiest way to get my point across. But what I really want to just uh, hammer through is that you need your cards to be versatile and you need them to be able to answer creatures and a braid is a disenchant effect that the deck sorely needs that also has the ability to just kill a creature and in, in the meanwhile like if you're playing against a like a Nethersphere a deck with Ethersphere Harvester in it yes that card is problematic and a braid is excellent against that but they could also just play Rankle and if you have a Smash Smithereens in your hand you're dead the game's over but if it's a braid 
sometimes you win and that's great. Yeah. All right, Todd, we're getting tight on time. I think we got to talk a little bit about the future of this deck. So we have some, we have some big changes coming up with the new Theros set. We have new decks. We have, you know, when a deck gets popular in the metagame, people try to fight it. So we have all those things coming up with Chonky Red. What do you think about the future of Chonky Red? Uh, it's tough because I, I don't want to say that uh, the deck is like not as good as it was a week ago, but honestly, it's not as good as it was a week ago. <laughs> Simply put, people people are starting to adapt. More eyes are actually on the Pioneer format because it's a Pro Tour coming up. Uh, so you have a lot of the best players in the game all kind of delving into the format on Magic Online. Uh, various Grand Prix are, are coming up or happening, and and uh, people are just finding that hey. Beating a monocolor deck, even if it's mid-range with a bunch of really strong cards, is not that hard. All you have to do to beat Chonky Red is go a little bit bigger than them. And you know what deck goes a little bit bigger than Chonky Red? Niv-Mizzet. Niv-Mizzet. That card's ridiculous. <laughs> and, like, your spot removal is bad against them. So they they're, they are the perfect foil to your strategy because they're a mid-range deck that's not vulnerable to removal spells that goes way over the top of Glorybringer. And that's just not something you're well-equipped to handle. With that said, uh, there's not really a, a lot of great aggro decks in the format. And uh, so there's nothing really to prey on the niv deck for stumbling or being a little slower than, than the other decks. Uh, outside of Mono Black Aggro, which I think is potentially not even that bad of a matchup because of stuff like Siege Rhino just gaining you a bunch of life. Yeah, woof. So uh, to, to put it simply... The deck is still extremely good. If you want to do well in a tournament, I think you could do a lot worse than picking up the current 75 that everyone has just been playing and doing well with. Uh, but I would also be looking to explore a lot of new stuff from Theros Beyond Death, as well as just new stuff popping up in the format, because it's always best to just keep an open mind. Sure. And I mean, not to spoil uh, the whole article, it still is under premium lockdown, but some of the things you mentioned was, and you also mentioned here is checking out things like Rekindling Phoenix, checking out things like Hanwar Garrison, Hanwar Battlements. Those are some options that you might help it fight the mirror or fight uh, decks with more removal. No, exactly. I think um, just being open to changing cards in your deck to to be slightly better against the more popular decks in the format, that's just good deck building, for lack of a better term. That's just how you're supposed to approach Magic tournaments. And if you are playing the same 75 you play in every event, then either the format's bad or you're bad. Like, no offense. Like, you, you just, you just got to be updating with the times. And that's not to say that, like, you know, there there is nothing wrong with taking the same seventy five to F and M every week because you just don't have the time to to change it. You, is that Colhan? Is that life? I, <laughs> I I magic is my life, right? I have that luxury to be able to spend forty hours a week playing, talking, thinking about magic, and not a lot of people do. So don't don't take it the wrong way. But just if you want to be at the top level, just make sure that you are always open to be flexible and always open to change your deck. Yeah. Makes good sense. So I think we have a little bit of time to do some listener questions. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll head on into the wind down for some listener questions for Todd. All right, Todd. So we have some questions from our Patreons in the Dive Down Nation. A little bit more uh, more fun, more loose. So KZ 
asks, do you think there's an opportunity to splash something like white or black or is the mana consistency and the ability to run Mutavault too large of a benefit to want to give up? I, I think there's always going to be some give and take, but for the most part, the mono red one is the best one at the moment. However, uh, with the encroaching five color Nimzet, uh deck being like pretty problematic, I am definitely open to looking into other colors to solve those problems. I think something like Nahiri the Harbinger could be quite good in, in just like uh, getting rid of some of like problematic creatures or random enchantments. And generally speaking, you're, you're on a red deck. You can't really deal with enchantments. So having white in your deck has a lot of merit to it. Uh, as far as black is concerned, I've seen a number of strategies incorporating Scrap Heap Scrounger alongside Unlicensed Integration. I'm not the hugest fan of it because you are just ruining your mana base and uh, allied color strategies are pretty bad in the format. Yeah. I played against a deck, a uh, mono red deck, essentially the same mono red deck that had uh, Croxa in it, which was kind of a surprise and and beat me because I was playing mono red and so is a little bigger than me, but um, it still seemed like pretty unstable to me, although it did kind of prove to me that that card might be okay. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the Titans are certainly strong, and uh, I think Marrow actually had a whole article about like why they only chose two of the actual five Titan cycle they had access to, because it's better to just have the best, right, and only have a couple than trying to spread them out among things arbitrarily. Interesting. So we have one more question or another question from Jason in our Patreon who asked, um, if you could identify one of the big level up moments in your career, uh, what, what was the time where you suddenly realized that you thought magic could be your future? Uh, I, that's hard to pinpoint exactly. I'll, I'll say that obviously winning a tournament is a big deal and that can occasionally propel you. And it certainly did me, but the point where I knew that I could like play magic semi-professionally at the very least was just after uh, seeing a lot of success playing as good players on Magic Online. And not to say that Magic Online is the place to do that, but Magic Online and Magic Arena now are just places where you can play a high number of raw games. Digitizing the experience uh, turns it into much more of uh, an experience of, of grinding rather than just being smarter than people. And so uh, it's it's it feels way more about just getting better mechanically so that you can actually uh, utilize your brain power on things that matter, like strategically, as opposed to just making sure you don't misclick or miss, you know, tap the wrong land or whatever, like stuff like that. You just can't uh, when you're playing high level play, you can't sit there and think, OK, well, I need to tap these, these two lands. And I have people in my chat all the time who are just like, dude, you can't. What are you doing? Why are you tapping your lands like that? It's like, I'm not casting anything else. Leave me sure. alone. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why would I leave up red, red, blue instead of blue, blue, red? Like, because I, oh, you want to bluff counterflux? And my, it doesn't matter. <laughs> what, what a spell to bluff, too. Oh, my goodness. I'm bluffing the overload on counterflux just in case. <laughs> yeah. You know, when it doesn't matter, don't put too much thought into it because th that is when you start expending way too much mental energy. Um, but as far as like the level up moment, just. Play a bunch. If you feel yourself getting better, like if you hit Mythic for the first time on Arena and you didn't think that you could do that, like that might be your level up moment. If you 5-0 a Magic Online preliminary or top eight a PTQ, that can be your level up moment where you realize that maybe I'm actually pretty good at this. All right. Moving on to a question from Ron. How is streaming Pioneer from the inception of the format itself and other creators like really contributed to the meta? Like, is this sort of the thing where 
you feel like people who are streaming content creators have had a bigger thumbprint than in modern? Uh, I think that um, like modern was kind of brought about right before streaming became a thing. Like it like Twitch existed, but it wasn't that popular. And it certainly wasn't a place where most people got their decks. And I think in that time period, uh, websites that ran strategy articles were king of the crop uh, for just like giving you not only the best strategy content, but also providing you with the best deck list possible. But now people get that in real time from streaming. And it, it so the, the formats change faster. People see what works and doesn't work. You don't need to go 5-0 to know that the combo is good. Like I, I, I go 3-2 all the time and I'm like, this deck is ridiculous because I, I'm literally just misplaying over and over again because I, I pick up a different deck like every league and I just want to try stuff out. And, and so I, I'm way more on, on the feel side of it where this new Underworld Breach combo, for example, is just unreasonable. But I am bad. <laughs> I am bad, but the but the card is just Yogmoth's will for two mana. Like it's it is unreal. But I haven't gone five zero yet because I suck. <laughs> is the is the big combo there? Just to be clear, is it comboing it in the Lotus Field shell? Basically, is that what it doesn't have on? to? But yeah, I mean, the thing about the card is that there's so many weird ways to to pair it with various things. Like you can combo kill your opponent with hidden strings, Lotus Field. And Tome Scour. That is a kill. Oh, geez. That's a kill because you mill your whole deck. Because you remember Tome Scour? Yeah, Tome Scour just mill five, right? That is that is a deterministic kill. And it's not even a question. It's not like, oh, you might miss. No, you mill five, you untap the two things, and then you just have the mana to cast them both again. Like you just, because you gain two mana on the exchange. So you just get to mill yourself for 10. And that fuels the future escape cost of the rest of the things. Like it's just. It's a stupid card. It should not exist. Well, Period. Point blank. That's scary. All right, Todd, we're going to wrap up. But before we get to our stuff, plug yourself. Where can people find you? When can they find you? Uh, you can find me streaming at twitch.tv slash strong underscore sad. Check out my stream uh, basically every day, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Mostly playing Pioneer. I will be delving into Modern uh, soon. And I played some Legacy the other day. That was quite a bit of fun. Um you can check out my articles on StarCityGames.com. I'm usually uh, put up on Thursday. Uh, I do commentary for the SCG Tour. You can check that out on Twitch.tv slash StarCityGames. Uh, a lot of weekends, whenever we have an open, I'll be there. And last but not least, you can follow me on Twitter, strong underscore sad. I know there's a theme going here. Um, <laughs> strong underscore sad on Twitter. And I talk a lot about magic, but also update my stream schedule and stuff. So if you want to follow the stream, that is certainly uh, somewhere you can find me posting quite regularly. Also dunking on jerks. <laughs> yeah, Todd, you are um, before, of course, even before you agreed to come on this podcast, you are one of my favorite streams to have on during the day. So I encourage Thanks, all of our listeners to check you out. It's fun to be on the Todd squad, see some of those Quizno sub rats singing all the time. Subs. We like the subs. I can't wait for the NDA from the non-existent Quiznos. <laughs> Quiznos is back from the dead to sue you into oblivion. Yeah, just, just. Uh, mm. I forgot to send you this, Todd. I was at a folk art museum this weekend in Santa Fe, right? And there was a piece of art that looked like 25 sub rats. <laughs> and I was, I need to send it to you. I took a photo of it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely so, show it on stream. Put in, uh, are you, uh, join, just join my Discord and then post it up in there. Will do. So that wraps up this week's show. 
Todd, thanks again for being on with us. So yeah, no problem. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to the pod so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. If you use Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. Helps people find us, makes us feel good about ourselves. If you want to submit a question to us or to Todd, you know you can shoot us an email at thedivedown at gmail.com. Uh, tweet at us or at Todd. We're the dive down, all one word on Twitter. If you want to support the show, join the Patreon. Joining it at any tier gets you access to the super secret Slack server. Patreon.com slash the dive down. Of course, manatraders.com. Thanks again for sponsoring us. You can sign up for manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word for 15% off your first three months. And thanks again to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and make a goblin.